Welcome to Camdeners, the official podcast for the Camden Clean Air Initiative with me, Jeffrey Young. In this podcast series, we get to know and discover the lives of Camdeners, those special individuals shaping the unique and vibrant culture of the borough of Camden. Today, we're here in the studio with film director and screenwriter, Joel Hopkins. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. Great to be here. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you yourself and about your career. Well, I was born in Camden, uh, so I'm I'm a I'm a, a Camden uh, native. I was uh, actually born up. Uh, well, I was actually born in Tottenham. That's true. I was born in Tottenham Hospital, but then quickly brought back to Camden. <laughs> <laughs> and I grew up in um, sort of the Dartmouth Park area. Um, and then uh, in the, I grew up. Uh, my parents are architects, and I grew up in a. Um, glass box. Um, they built a house in Hampstead, and they had their practice on the top floor. And I used to live uh, with family. Used to live on the basement floor, ground floor. It's a lovely house on Downshire Hill, which is quite. If you if you're an architect or not, if you know Downshire Hill, it's uh, quite a well known house, which was built in 1975. And uh, I had an idyllic childhood in the borough of Camden. Went to New End Primary School, and. Um, I ended up at uh, Highgate School and I used to walk across the heath to go to school or bicycle sometimes across the heath every morning to go to school. So I had a very happy childhood growing up here and then uh, went to college in Canterbury. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, thought I should do architecture because that's what my parents did. And then my sister, big sister, came back from uni and said she was going to do architecture. And I was like, great, you're the architect. I'm not the architect. And then I got into photography, stills photography, and that sort of became my way into film. As a graduate, I applied to NYU Film School. They do a summer sort of boot camp course there, a six-week sort of film boot camp. And I went out and did that and partly fell in love with New York but and, partly, and fell in love with sort of filmmaking. And you sort of ran around New York for one hot summer making these funny little films. That became my sort of portfolio in a way. And then I, I used that to get into the graduate school, which was a three-year program. The tradition of film school here in the UK more comes out of art school. So it's more sort of visually led. Whereas in, in at NYU, from day one, it's sort of, they drum into you story, story, story. It can look fantastic, but you've got to have a good story sort of thing. And, and so I learned a good um, appreciation of sort of, I guess, classical structure, three-act structure, and really sort of built up a, a sort of uh, appreciation of, of that. Um, that's sort of where the sort of screenwriting side of things came in. What you're told to do at film school is to graduate with an award-winning short film and then have your feature script ready. And I kind of did that. I had a film, my graduation film was a film called Jorge, which won some awards and won the Sundance Award. And then I sort of built a, a, a sort of fashioned a feature version of it which it was quite hard to do because often with a short film, you're encouraged to make quite short shorts. I, of course, had gone and made a 22-minute short. But for me, it was quite a step up to sort of know that I could basically keep people entertained for 22 minutes rather than 10 minutes. I tried to turn that 22-minute film into an 
hour and a half film by sort of adding a bit at the beginning, adding a bit at the end. And I kept hitting a brick wall. So I then took the sort of things that were the things people really responded to, the sort of character and some of the themes and sort of plonked them in a different story, a sort of bigger story. They used to have a program called the Film Lab, which was dedicated to films under basically a million dollars or sort of 750,000 pounds. If you kept your budget under that, they sort of got behind sort of brand new filmmakers. And I managed to persuade them to get on board this. And that was a film called Jump Tomorrow, which um, uh, was my first feature film, which I wrote and and directed. And that that played at Sundance and uh, did well. And and then supposedly I was... had a career. Wow. So <laughs> and then it took about 10 years to get another film made. So what is it that attracted you to filmmaking? Screenwriting, no one can stop me sitting down and writing a story. You know, I don't need any money to do that. I don't need any backing. I can sit down and I can imagine a story or imagine a character. But um, it's a means to an end, you know. Uh, and I'm very much, I think, a sort of dual character in that I do like time on my own. I do like to be lost in my own head. But then I don't like too much of that because I I feel like I'm not part of the real world and I want to be with people and I want to communicate with people. I want to, it's fun, you know, trying to make something with people. So I appreciate the sort of different um, sides of what I do. And there's nothing more thrilling than being able to sort of dip into all the way through to sort of post-production when you get to work with musicians for a score and stuff. You get to dip into these worlds where people really know their stuff and you don't have to know too much. You know, you just have to know enough or you have to know what your story is sort of thing. And, and it's a real thrill. When you get to do it, it's, it's thrilling. Trouble is it doesn't happen <laughs> that often. I've made four, I'm, I'm hopefully start in October, starting my fifth feature film. So I've done four features. I tend to make a film about once every four years. And if I knew that I could carry on doing that, someone would let me do that, uh, that would be great. But I don't know, I, I, I fear it. <laughs> At some point, someone will say, that's it. <laughs> wow. Just for those lay people in the room, we all watch movies, but what, what's the actual role of a director? You know, I understand what a screenwriter is. You, you make the story, but then what's the role of a director? Um, really good question. I still, I'm still not 100% sure. I think a big part of directing, uh, I think, is casting. You cast the film with a casting director, but if you cast the film well, there's a saying that's you 90% of your job is done. You know, if you cast badly, if you miscast, then you're trying to fit a round peg into a square hole or whatever the expression. So casting's a big thing. I kind of approach it like I'm hosting a party. Like I want everyone to, uh, I need my set to be a happy place and a positive place. So I kind of go a bit overboard on kind of like being a host. Like I think I need to create a a good working environment. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, directing actors, I mean, I've had the good fortune to work with some pretty gifted and experienced actors. It's almost like, well, what am I going to tell them? Most of the time my directing note is, could you just do that a bit faster? <laughs> it's it's a rhythm thing and a timing thing, and you know you can get into a sort of into the wrong rhythm. And, and nine times out of ten, I'm saying that's great. Could we just try one a bit faster? And occasionally, you can remind actors what scene because you're shooting these things out of whack, out of sequence for budget reasons. You're shooting 
a scene that's way down the movie in the morning and then one that's the first scene you know you're all you're all over the place so occasionally you're just reminding the actor by the way, do you remember you've just shot someone or whatever? Not that I have any shootings in my film, <laughs> much to my children, my boys. I have three boys and they're really unimpressed with the, the type of films I make. The lack of uh, action in my films is uh, a big problem for them. So if I'm now understanding it, this has been great education for me. You cast, you create a happy set. You're then kind of literally making sure that everyone's sort of doing in speaking and doing everything that they're supposed to be doing at the right time, et cetera. Yeah. And then do you get involved in post-production? Directing, I guess you could call it directing for hire. Because I write the script, I'm on the whole, I write the script, I direct, and I see the film all the way through. But um, sometimes if you were directing a, a, you know, a, a television show that has a style and a format, I think you'll do a cut, but then you hand it off and then the producers or the showrunners will do their thing because I work in this realm where I'm, I'm writing the script and, and I'm directing then I'll edit the film with an editor and that really for me is 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 probably my most favorite stage because it's sort of got a an element of the writing process it's controlled it's calm it's warm you're inside whatever but then you're still you're working with an editor you're bouncing ideas off each other you're sculpting. It's another chance to sort of, it's almost like a rewrite, you know, with what you actually ended up with. You always get about a third, two thirds of the way through and you're, you're, you've got an hour left or something, you know. So it's always this sort of race against time. And I find it very like a scramble to get as many, as much material as you can in six, seven weeks in order to sit in a room and try and find your movie sort of thing. Do you ever kind of go, Oh, duh, why didn't <laughs> yeah. we do that? <laughs> okay, we're going to make this character die now because we forgot to film uh, this. No, I mean, absolutely. That's the thing. I think that's why the script stage is really important and getting trying to work it out in the script. And sometimes, you know, problems you have in the script, you kind of think, oh, well, movie magic will just sort of like fudge it a bit. And kind of nine times out of ten, the problem that was problematic in the script just looking at the first cut of the movie and going, oh, that still doesn't work. It never worked. Sorry, it never made it never made sense, and it still doesn't. Sort of thing. A lot of it's like coverage, like oh, only if we got a shot from up there, that would have worked really well. You know, you're always constantly going, oh no. And occasionally, occasionally, if the budget is big enough, you'll have an opportunity. On, I've only once had a chance to do. Having had sort of 12 weeks in an edit room, I was then given kind of drawn up a wish list of shots we didn't get and things we didn't get and scenes that just I was then given another week's shooting to go and sort of fix some things. Um, but I've never had that experience since. Um, it was a sort of particular budget and um, that was a real luxury. But most of the time it's sort of, you know, you've got to work with what you got in that shoot and, and, and make it work. And, you know, there are lots of sort of tools you can use. What would you say are some of the highlights of your career so far? Well, this is up there. <laughs> but highlights, um, I've worked with some really pretty amazing actors. I've, I've worked with Dustin Hoffman and Emma Thompson and um, Diane Keaton. I don't get any less sort of starstruck when I meet, work with these people. I, I made a film called Last Chance Harvey with Dustin and Emma. Because I had a sort of year-long sort of wooing of Dustin. I had to sort of, he read the script, 
liked the script, but never said he was going to right, I'll do it. He was sort of, yeah, I like it sort of thing. So I then spent a sort of year sort of following him around or being summoned to sort of chat about the script in various sort of amazing places. You know, he had this triplex in Manhattan and I'd go and meet him there and he'd, he, I'd arrive and he'd be playing the piano. And, you know, I'd walk down uh, Fifth Avenue with him and someone would stop and say, hey, I'm walking here, I'm walking, which is a famous line from um, his film Midnight Cowboy. And then I met him in Los Angeles, and uh, I had this slightly sort of fairy tale sort of year trying to persuade him to do the film. And I had a lot of sort of extraordinary stories, and, and um, he did finally agree to do the film. Being my age, kind of Dustin Hoffman growing up was like a movie star, like from another sort of when movie stars were really movie stars. You know, they were like, they were sort of on another planet. So he was a sort of icon for me. So that was a pretty highlight i guess to to get to work with him nothing beats the sort of making your first film really or i guess even uh, making my first short sort of a short film that played festivals you know when you play your short film and the audience uh, you know jorge my short film was a it was a sort of comedy and people laughed and that thrill of sort of sitting in the back just hearing an audience respond to what you've made it was just thrilling and that got uh, exaggerated and, and, and more so with Jump Tomorrow. So just the experience of, oh, okay, I did that or I helped do that and, and now people are enjoying it. It's just magical. And again, I've only, I don't get to make these very often. So whenever I do, I always, I always make sure I go to, you know, go and watch them in regular cinemas and I'll, People laugh at me because I'll go, they think, oh, you're obsessed with your film. I'm like, no, I mean, I've spent five years making this thing. I'm going to, and the, the trouble is, you know, they're out in the cinema for two weeks and then they're gone. So my last film I made was called Hampstead and that, uh, you know, had a probably in the cinemas for around a month, but I would go and sort of sit, you know, all the cinemas knew who I was sort of thing. So I'd say, oh, hi, I'm just going to sneak in and see how it's going. Sort of I hope they let you in for free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, sometimes I'd pay to sort of, be, when, when the box office takings weren't, weren't going too well, I'd, sure. I might sort of boost it. No, I, the film Hampstead, mm. now obviously, you know, is that what it was all about? Was it a sort of reflection of your background is, you know? No, not really. Interestingly, Hampstead is the only film which I didn't write the script. A director will always do something called a director's pass where they'll work on the script with the screenwriter. And I did a little bit myself. But up until that point, I had always written the script and then directed it. So this was my first time doing someone else's script. And then it was based on a sort of true story. We were making a film for a global audience in a way. So it, it, it had to be quite broad strokes. As a Hampstead boy, uh, I would say I kind of just touched the surface in a way. You know, this is a film with Diane Keaton. and But no, I'm, I'm really, there's, there's definitely some things that got into the movie. Like, I would like to think that a, I don't know, American director wouldn't have, wouldn't have brought to the film. I saw a couple of scenes. Mm. Is um, Perrin's, Perrin's Lane in that? I mean, for, for a film called Hampstead, we didn't shoot an awful lot in Hampstead. <laughs> but the film, just for people who don't know what the film story is about, it's, based on the true story of Harry Hallows, who lived on Hampstead Heath, built a shack for himself in the grounds, the bottom of Antrim House, next to Kenwood. It's the big house with a sort of turret. 
that have sort of gardens that sort of spill down into the heath. And at the very bottom was a bit of disputed land, whether it was heathland or the garden or the houses. Athlone House, sorry, not Antrim House, Athlone House. And he built a shack there and he lived there for sort of 20 odd years. And there was a sort of court case. They tried to get him out and uh, went to court and he won the, he won the right to remain. He'd been there more than whatever the sitting tenancy rules are. And it was a court case and he won. And, and so based on this sort of true story, the screenwriter created a character in Diane Keaton who plays a sort of uh, uh, an American widow who lives on sort of in a flat on the edge of the heath. And it's a sort of unlikely sort of r- friendship between these two people. And she gets involved in, in, his cam- in the campaign to sort of save his shack. His domain is basically the heath. And so we shot, it, the film could have been called Hampstead Ham and High, I think. <laughs> it, uh, we shot some up in, the idea is he, he as, as he did in real life, he, he roamed the heath. And um, so we shot at Highgate Cemetery. We shot in Hampstead, obviously Hampstead High Street. So um, Diane Keaton's character works at the uh, Oxfam shop just off the high street. And then her flat was on um, West Heath Road. We shot in a, um, a, a building there for her f- apartment. But the actual shack, uh, t- so to, to film on the Heath is quite um, complicated. And the, we did a sort of day on the Heath. But the actual majority of, of the shoot, we um, built his shack in a, the gardens of a stately home just on, sort of outside the M25. The majority probably of the movie wasn't on the heath. It was in a, a sort of green. The magic of movies, really. Excellent. Now, <laughs> you were nominated some years ago for a, well, you actually received a BAFTA Carl Foreman Award. Uh, yeah. Most promising yeah. newcomer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> peaked, too, <laughs> peaked too young. <laughs> well, tell us, you know, I mean, there'll be a lot of young people listening to this, people from the community of the Camden. What advice would you give to a... Uh, Newcomer, potentially someone um, in film. What what would you have changed today? Yeah, what would you have uh, get people to focus on, especially young filmmakers? Young filmmakers, yeah. yeah, yeah. My my one thing, if one was thinking about going down the sort of academic route into film school, I really I'm really glad I went as a postgraduate. I think if I'd rocked up in New York as an undergraduate, well, personally, I would have found New York too too fantastic and sort of tempting. And I think I would have made some music videos and sort of been cool. And da, da, da. I kind of went when I kind of had, I went to a kind of sleepy undergraduate degree. I kind of had sort of got my parting out of my system a little bit. And I kind of felt like I had a little bit more focus and a bit more to say. But I do think sometimes um, to go out, basically go out there in the world and try things. And then it, maybe it's something that, you come to later or don't be afraid to come to it later but on a more sort of practical level the ability now to make things and the access to 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 high quality you know films are can be shot on iPhones you know in some ways there's nothing stopping you you know <laughs> and there's the trouble is is you make these things and then you need somewhere to 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 show them you know you need an audience you need to i mean you obviously you post them on, on online and I think you can build up. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, Jeff, because I'm, I feel like I'm, a, I, like I'm sitting here and we're waiting for, you know, life to go back to normal and cinemas to open again and talking to friends the other day, you know, 
they said, move over the novel, move over the, the film. It, it's the, the long formatted show, you know, where you can take characters and you can develop them. That is the high point of our culture at the moment. And it's knocking the f- novel and the, and, the, and the movie kind of out of the water. And I struggling to kind of, dis, you know, <laughs> totally disagree because some of the things that are, I think these long running shows kind of, they never end quite as brilliantly as they begin. But I want to say just go out there and shoot stuff. But I'm also conscious of there's an awful lot of just, you know, stuff out there that just gets dumped onto the internet and, and it lacks sort of structure. And I, one of the things I, like I said to you at the beginning, like I really appreciated at NYU was I got this appreciation of structure and like telling a good story. I would encourage people, if you're interested in, in film or TV, is to not just think about it the visual side of things, I guess, um, also, you know, to, to look into the writing side of things. And, and um, I mean, the great thing about doing a film course is you get given a sort of little community on a plate in a way. Again, coming back to this thing of making these things and having no one to show them. Whereas at film school, you go off and make these funny little films and you come back and you show each other and, and you sit down and you, and you you show, you present your work and you get to talk about it and you get feedback. And and that's what more than anything I got out of film school was being given a sort of community to sort of bounce back with. What projects are you working on at the moment? So I had a film project that was about to go before this annoying pandemic. So breaks were put on that and looks like we're going to start filming in October. It's called Not Bloody Likely. And I wrote the script and it's based on um, the first ever staging of Pygmalion, which became My Fair Lady. It was first staged in 1914 um, in London. So on the e- you know, unbeknownst to, to them, but on the eve of the First World War. I understand you have a, another Camdener playing in that. Yes, yeah, so we've got Helena Bonham Carter playing um, Mrs. Pat Campbell. Pierce Brosnan's going to play George Bernard Shaw. And then it looks like John Lithgow's going to play Sir Herbert Tree. We're going to shoot in Dublin in October for six weeks in a theatre there and then around Dublin, but we're going to be pretending we're in London, so it's going to be challenging. So how long does it take to make a film like this? So we're going to film for six weeks, 30 days, which is not a lot for a period film. I'm very nervous. I think we need much longer. On Hampstead, I had 40 days, and that was just a contemporary film, two people sitting in a park. So we need more days, but that's, that's just the reality. So we've got to work fast. And then, so that's six weeks filming, and then you'll, I'll be editing the film for about 12 weeks, and then sort of post-production, another sort of two or three months after that. So tends to, ends up being about a year. In the cinemas, um, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, who knows, sort of next autumn 20. Wow. That would be my Such guess. A <laughs> long process, I know, isn't it? I know. So... What is it about living in the borough of Camden that you like? And what's special about Camden? I, um, I know no other. <laughs> like, so as I said, I grew up in Camden and loved growing up here. And then I had a period away. I couldn't imagine coming back anywhere else. You know, we now live sort of Primrose Hill. So I laughed the fact I basically rolled down Haverstock Hill over the hump a bit. I haven't come very far. But uh, yeah, no, when I moved back from having lived in the States for 14 years, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Fantastic. Um, and COVID, 
what's been the sort of impact on your mm. psyche or your life? I think what a lot of you're hearing from a lot of people, and I, I feel the same, there have been some positives, you know, and I try to focus on positives, you know, uh, generally try and tell myself. In that first lockdown, I started off going, okay, I'm going to be incredibly productive. And then I just like, no, I just sort of gave myself a break. And I just said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to worry about not being productive. I'm just going to kind of try and live. There was something very special about that, just sort of going back to the sort of basics of like, you know, talking to your kids and feeding your kids and feeding yourself. And I don't know, I just slowed down and I, I didn't beat myself up about writing that next great script sort of thing. I just, and I did quite a lot of reading. And so I appreciated that. I liked life how it was. <laughs> so I can't pretend I just kind of want it to go back to how it was because I was enjoying life. I mean, we live in an amazing part of London. When it works, it's, you know, it's fantastic. Um, I think London and Camden in particular, you know, you've got the best of both in some ways. You've got you've got a sort of vibrant urban fabric, but then you've also got some space. You can you can have a garden and you can not everyone I know, but but if you're not a garden, there are a lot of there's a lot of green space. You know, having lived in New York, as fantastic as it is, bringing up a family, it can, you know, I think we were on the cusp of doing that. We brought our kids home to London aged sort of four and two, I think. So we were on the edge of like, okay, are we going to do the next step here? <laughs> I had a film filming in London. We kind of used that as, okay, well, we'll go back for the film. And we didn't actually say oh, we're moving back to London. We kind of went and then we kind of stayed sort of thing. So I edited it in London. And so we just sort of suddenly found ourselves living back in London. But I, I really enjoy London. And I like the sociable aspect of London and... I want it. I want it back. Well, it's coming back. <laughs> well, it's coming back, I'm sure. Not quite at Freedom Day yet. <laughs> Thanks, Joel, for joining us here today. You're and that's all for this episode of Camdeners. If you'd like more information, please see the links below. Camdeners was recorded in Serendipity Studios in Arlington Road for the Camden Clean Air Initiative. Time